listening to Art Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm B. And this is a podcast where we explore the world of contemporary art together as a father-daughter project. And do you think it helps the relationship, Dad? Uh, it certainly keeps the relationship on its toes. And um, I suppose like all art, there's a degree of creative tension which adds to the uh, product. So maybe actually these discussions are a form of performance art between ourselves. Yes, yeah, they are, I think. And um, I'm hoping that lots of people listening around the world are experiencing it as such. (laughs) Good. Uh, This week, we're not talking about performance art. We're talking about a work called Leaseholds from 2016 by Mao Tongkiang. Yes, and this is uh, very interesting. I'm uh, really keen to talk about this. Good. Makes for a change. Um, (laughs) Well, this artist was born in 1960, so good year. Don't you agree? Yes, very good year. (laughs) Uh, In Yinqiang in Ningxia in China, and he graduated from the University of Ningxia in 1980 and the Zhejiang Academy of Fine Arts, which is now the China Academy of Art in Hangzhou in 1986, and now works between Yinqiang and Beijing. And a lot of his work looks at Chinese history with a big focus on urbanisation and social change. Um, would you like to describe this work for our listeners? Yeah, so his work is a um, series of um a wall and, and a table full of framed um, certificates behind glass um, with um, very, you know, obviously written in Mandarin script with official stamps marked all over them. And they are the official records of land leases from various periods of Chinese history. Yeah, so it sort of arranges a room and in this arrangement of it, because it's been shown in various arrangements, including a massive arrangement of um, 1,300 documents in 2009. It, this one involves 500 land title deeds, which he collected over a period of three years. And as you say, they date back to the 17th century, so to the Qing dynasty, and up to the 1970s. And, of course, um, the idea of land ownership has a very tense history in China. Yes, I mean, one of the great um, sources of oppression during the imperial era was the fact that the Chinese peasantry didn't have title to their land. It was essentially feudal, the relationship they had with the land, and they they worked the land that was owned by um, aristocrats and lived in a tremendously um, depressed economic situation. And unfortunately, not that much was done to resolve that during the period after the um, Chinese revolution by Sun Yat-sen in uh, 1912. Um, And, you know, it bedeviled the history of the Republic of China right through to the Communist Revolution in 1949. Yeah, so... Mao, not the the artist we're talking about, but who became Chairman Mao, you know, was obviously very focused on uh, mobilising these poor peasants who didn't have title to the land that they worked. And he sort of started talking about this in uh, his 1927 report on an investigation of the peasant movement in Hunan. And he advocated you know, what was in a sort of heretical strategy of mobilising peasants to carry out 
a, a struggle. Um, and from that point on, he rejected the idea of peaceful land reform and said that instead the peasants had to be involved in the violent overthrow of the landlords. Um, and, of course, you can see how the idea of land reform would be extremely appealing to the peasants who were working the land at this time. I mean, I read a statistic that said in 1934, 4% of the population owned half the land. Yeah, I can well believe that. And, and um, you know, no one expected that the peasantry could possibly be mobilised in that way, um, much less be formed into armies that would, would eventually um, overthrow the Kuomintang um, government um, in 1949. It was, it was a huge shock that that could even happen. And very soon after the revolution in 1950, we saw the land reform law come in. Do you know much about the reform? Um, well, from what I've, I've read of, of Chinese history, it was a, I mean, it was an incredibly bloodthirsty period because the peasantry were encouraged to vent their anger on the landlord class um, to hold trials and, you know, which were basically a mob in a village surrounding the landlord. And very often, ended with the death of the landlord at the hands of the peasantry who believed that you know this was the avenue to ultimately obtaining title to the land yeah so i mean in these these trials i mean they were called struggle sessions and they were organized by the communist party and you know the the landlords would be accused of crimes against peasants and sentenced to death and apparently i mean the estimates from these killings range from hundreds of thousands to millions throughout that period. And of course that led to Mao's, you know, infamous response to objections to that violence. Do you remember what that was? Well, he says revolution is not a dinner party. Um, yeah. I think it sort of echoes what I think was a phrase by Lenin, you can't make omelets without breaking eggs. Yeah, so, very sort of utter, Yeah, utter disdain for the, for the human cost. Yeah, and I mean, I think also that, you know, reference to the dinner party obviously has echoes of, you know, bourgeois people sitting around having a fine time while peasants are toiling in the fields. But, I mean, with the number of people who were killed and the severe inequality in land distribution, you know, the referred to back in 1934, I mean, it's hard to imagine that all of these landlords were living luxurious lives. I mean, surely some of them were. Yes, I'm sure they were grades of landlord. And I mean, I I actually um, went in my very first time, I, I've travelled to China probably about 20 times all in all to do teaching. And the very first trip I made to China was to a city called Jiantang in Hunan province. And as the sort of major outing that I was um, taken on, um, the person who was escorting me said, today we are going to see Mouse House. And I thought, um, what is this? Is this? I mean, I remember that you and I used to make these little mouse villages. Do you remember with the matchboxes yeah. and the paper with a road? And in the end, of course, it wasn't a mouse house. It was Mao's house. And there was a village um, near Jiangtang, which had um, 
which was the village he came from, and his house was restored. I, I don't know to what extent faithfully, but it wasn't a hovel. I mean, it was in the tradition of many Chinese houses, um, a number of rooms arranged around a courtyard. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, his if we were to use a sort of Marxist-Leninist taxonomy of classifying his family, they were probably petty bourgeoisie, which Ooh. wasn't really a good background to have. No, um, I mean... That was so often the case. I mean, Lennon's family was the same, weren't they? His dad. Yeah. Was, what did he do? I think he was a public servant, um, so yeah. not not low down. And this village was surrounded by a well. There was a gigantic statue of Mao, and there were um, coach loads of kids, school children coming, standing, having their photo taken. They would move off. The next coach load would come and have their photo taken. And then there was a, a an avenue leading to um, a um, complex that Mao had, had built adjacent to a mountain, and it went back into the mountain because it was meant to be able to withstand nuclear attack. And all the way up that path, there were these stalls where loudspeakers were blaring his speeches, um, TV sets were showing videos of him haranguing the crowds. There were little piles of his red book of sayings, statues. I mean, it was almost like visiting um, a shrine to a saint and very unnerving in a way that there could be such adulation of someone who would caused such terrible, um, terrible um, loss of life. Um, millions during, well, hundreds of millions probably during his tenure. But when you visit this house, I mean, you say it's, you know, like quite a nice bourgeois house. I mean, is there no sign of cognitive dissonance, I guess, in the material shown at the house that, you know, this was someone who proclaimed to be fighting for the peasants and yet here's this nice house. He obviously wasn't someone who'd come from that background himself. I mean, is there any hint of that? How is it dealt with? No, I'm yeah. Well, it's not dealt with. I mean, the, the, the question isn't put, and I don't think any peer person in China would dare put it yeah. um, as, yeah. to, as to that contradiction. Um. Yeah, well, obviously Mao, if he did see any contradiction, hit it extremely well because he, aside from his dinner party quip, he said of, you know, the the killing of landlords, it's fine, it's not terrible at all, it's anything but terrible he, you know, he obviously saw it as a way of overthrowing this old feudal order at any cost. I mean, it was the rise of the peasants was pitched, you know, completely against the interests of the landlords. You know, there was no sense of equality. But, I mean, when you look at the outcome of this land reform law, it was the first time that many peasants had held the title to the land that they farmed. And obviously people, you know, shouldn't be subjected <laughs> to a feudal system. And, you know, if peasants are working the land, they should be able to have title to the land that they're farming instead of living in abject poverty under landlords. But, of course, you know, the situation of peasants being able to hold the title didn't last long at all under Mao. No, because, you know, the land was collectivised in the early 50s. Everyone was forced to join um, states collectivized farms. Um, people lost their title. I mean, it was almost like a accelerated um, version of the transition from Lenin's new economic policy to collectivization under Stalin. And 
um you know it had it, it was the first of of many convulsions social convulsions in china the the policy became it was evident very soon that it was going to that it had wreaked havoc on food production um it was followed in i think about 1957 by this policy called um the hundred flowers policy where you know the people well, the um, Politburo said, well, we need to find new ideas. So this proclamation went out, uh, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a thousand schools of thought contend. And some people unwisely came out and expressed their op opposition to the prevailing policy, and they were all killed. And then to top that, there was this idea of mass or rapid industrialization. Um, the so-called Great Leap Forward, where peasants were encouraged to melt down their agricultural tools so that they could be used in steel foundries, with the result that hundreds of millions died. And and Mao was dismissive of that. He said, "Well, they're surplus people anyway." Um, so it was uh, it was an utter disaster. And of course, after that, there was the Cultural Revolution, which was a sort of battle between hard left and hard hard left within the, the communist chinese party so yeah terrible instability and bloodletting um and probably the most blood-soaked regime that's ever existed yeah and i think what's powerful about this work you know so we've said that their documents basically on display behind glass i mean that doesn't sound you know that powerful when you just hear that, or if you approach this work without context. But what's powerful about this work is when you think about that context, all this instability and death and suffering, that you can see the shadow of all of that in these documents. You know, they are a reflection of changes in policy, you know, across time, showing how people's livelihoods have been, you know, toyed with by different regimes. You know, these documents, when you think of them, you know, you think of something like your birth certificate or some other important document to you. I don't know, like your doctorate dad, I'm sure that's the most important document you've ever <laughs> held. That gives you your sense of self-worth. Um, I'm sure that's the bedrock of it. Um, <laughs> you know, you think of how important those personal documents are and how important they would be, especially you know, if you are a peasant who's been toiling in the fields, whether under an emperor, under an oppressive landlord, whatever, and suddenly you're given title to your land, how precious that would be. But then, you know, that piece of paper is meant to be a sign of stability, but then it's all ripped away. I mean, it becomes a very emotional object, even though it's actually, you know, normally presented as a very bureaucratic thing. Yeah, I mean, the... the it becomes very very sad i mean the the documents or some of them are very ornate i i actually reminds me of um uh about well 25 years ago um when we first bought a house in canberra um the lawyer who did the conveyancing his office had as an art display some very ornate chinese stock i.e uh, uh, share certificates from the early 20th century, um, beautifully engraved. And um, I remember remarking on them. And, you know, these are of, of similar ilk, although 
these are somewhat more worn, many of them, um, which, you know, shows that they've probably been passed from hand to hand, folded, refolded, um, and probably perused by the peasants um, who who saw them as, as their... Um, as an anchor and as evidence of, of a new status. Yeah, I mean, that sort of smudging and discolouring and staining. I mean, normally when we see something that's um, dirty, you know, we think of it as something that's unwanted. But here that wear and tear sort of takes away any kind of sense of de- uh, of bureaucratic sterility and shows that they really were essential to people's lives they were used by real people and the policies that they represented had real effects on these people um but i mean the form of these many of these deeds from the earlier from the qing dynasty and the republic of china period you know have an interesting form because they consist of two parts the first part was a white contract which was a handwritten document that recorded the name of the seller the buyer why they were selling the land the conditions of the sale and whatever and then that document was witnessed um, and neighbours authenticated it with seals or crosses or fingerprints. And then that was attached to the so-called red contract, which was a bureaucratic printed form, which was stamped with, an, with uh, these official carved red seals that certified the sale in the eyes of the state. And I think that that duality of the two documents, you know, one that's a very personal community story and one that's the official story, I mean, they match up to refer to the same piece of land shows how the land itself is kind of a bearer of various truths. Yes. Um, I mean, I can see, I know that you practised as a lawyer for a while um, after you graduated, the sort of a nascent um, conveyancer coming after you <laughs> with this distinction, which is very interesting, isn't it, that there was a distinction drawn in the Chinese legal system, as in ours, between the contract of sale and the actual registration of ownership. Mm. Um, and, I mean, you know, you think also of the opportunity lost by the failure of um, the Republic of China government. I mean, a, a lot of the time it didn't have effective control over the territory of China between 1912 and 1949 because warlords controlled vast swathes of the countryside but they learned their lesson ultimately because when they fled to Taiwan one of the first things they did was implement what was called the land to the tiller land reform project which actually did get the land away from landlords and give it into the private ownership of the peasants and you know was part of the foundation for Taiwan's economic success but I mean these um these documents um, from mainland China are very sad in a way, and you just wonder what happened to the people who handled them. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they could be gathered for an art project like this is significant in itself. You know, they're, they're obviously no longer relevant in a practical sense, although undoubtedly would have emotional relevance to the people who once handled them which just shows how quickly life can change through regime change. But I think, you know, in a sense, the documents are given a new meaning through this artistic presentation because it's, you know, sort of part of this movement of archive art. So, you know, how can art enliven or make use of archives? Um, 
And, you know, by presenting the historical record through art, you can reveal layers of experience and meaning which wouldn't be public if they were kept in archives, you know, whether those are personal, you know, your your filing cabinet at home or whatever, or a public archive or records office. You know, here they become not just um, personal documents or practical documents, they become a new demonstration of how legal documents are used as a tool of state authority, but also in the presentation of those documents as a room behind glass where the viewer is also reflected back. It shows how state authority really permeates domestic space and permanent uh, personal life. Yes, I mean, something that sort of uh, interests me and raises a question in my mind if you are viewing all these documents and you understand the history, as I'm sure every Chinese person would, uh, of land title in China, couldn't this be seen as an implicit, almost mute protest against what has happened to land in China? I'm surprised it's not seen as subversive. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, as I said, the artist does still live in China. This specific work was on display at um, Wide Rabbit Gallery in Sydney, but I mean, he still lives and works in China. I would presume that it falls into the class of subversive works that are perhaps not, um, that are, I guess, safe enough for the government not to bother Pushing back, I mean, my impression, maybe you know more, is that the the Communist Party, you know, allows some degree of open artistic dissent where it isn't inciting outright action against the party. Yes. And I, I suppose, you know, there's this very strange um, attempt to rationalise Mao, which... I've read frequently in, in histories of China, and, and the official position on Mao is that he was 70% good, 30% bad. Now, I mean, that seems to be an amazingly precise and specific empirical measure of moral quality. Um, you know, if anything, I'd make him 10% good, 90% bad. But uh, so there is probably some wriggle room there for implicit criticism of the of the um, uh, political conditions prior to the demise of Mao and, and the Gang of Four after him. But I imagine you have to sail a very, very narrow course in engaging in this sort of thing. Mm. And I think also because it criticises not just Mao, but all of these yeah. um, political structures that came before, it's a more general discussion. But, I mean, of course... The archive that is the archive of documents, the collection of documents that is used for this presentation, um, I think ends in the 70s. But of course, okay. you know, these issues around displacement continue today. I mean, you oh, yes. witnessed some of. Yeah, very definitely. The, the, the city I'm most familiar with um, in China is Hefei. And when I first went there, um, which would have been probably about 2009, um, you know, I remember that the college I was teaching at, you went along the, a road and then suddenly you came to this huge construction area 
um, gravel road, trucks bumping along. Um, then the next time I went back, um, a highway had been built to where one went and you there were still fields around. And then a huge hotel had been built in one of the fields and you were overlooking from your hotel window um, a farm. And then the next time you went there, the farm was gone. There was a gigantic shopping center. It was literally year by year that the city was expanding. And the thing about land tenure in China is that because all land is is still owned by the state and you only ever have some form of lease over, over it, as you said, everything was collectivized in 1953. Um, and by the state, it, it's meant the, the, the provincial government and then down below them, the city government, um, the bureaucrats at city and provincial level determine the allocation of land. And therefore, if you've got a powerful corporation that wants to build a supermarket complex, um, well, the farmers are pressured to give up their lease with some compensation, but often not enough, and shunted off to some um, apartment block um, where they have to live. And the new lease is transferred to the um, apartment, to the um, supermarket company um, in exchange for a payment under the table to the local officials. So it's enormously corrupt and has led to a lot of unrest that we don't hear about. But it's, mm. it's one of the major flashpoints of dissent in China. And, and something of an irony that the revolution which began with the peasants is now inspiring opposition from the peasants mm. and i mean it really all it, you know there was a lot of public one situation where we did see a lot of public attention on it was you know in the preparations for the beijing olympics where i mean the chinese foreign ministry claims only fifteen thousand people were moved for the building of you know things related to the olympics but other estimates say that it was 1.5 million people displaced where the olympics you know, compared to the livelihoods of millions of people, it's not important at all. Like No, no. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that in that way, you know, you say we don't hear about the dissent about it. I think that's also what makes this artwork very um, emotive is that it's that kind of quiet way of encouraging thinking. You know, it's not overt. Yes. But yeah. it does recall, you know, these generations of struggle um, and encourage people to think, you know, well, how does that continue to be relevant to us today? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, before I ask you our normal question of do you like this artwork, I'm going to ask you two others. First of all, on your next holiday, wherever that be, would you prefer to visit Mao's house again or a mouse house? Would you have any interest in visiting a mouse house? Yeah, I, I, I think um, I'd I far prefer to see mice running around in their little house than to see Mao's house, definitely. So that's the answer to that question. Okay, my second question is, what percentage good and bad do you think you are? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, well, you know, didn't Orwell write in 1984, he who controls the past controls the future? So I think I'm going to have to make very certain that I – establish you know a sort of 95 five good <laughs> 95 good five percent bad just to show that i'm human um you know in in the official history 
Um, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, <laughs> well, finally we come to, do you like this artwork? Very much so, yeah. I, I actually have a fondness for for documents and fine printing. I mean, I, I have a stamp collection um, and I also have some old banknotes from Rhodesia and Zimbabwe, which I like very much. And I would love to have something like one of these certificates on the wall um, mm. to look at. Yeah, very, very nice. Great. Uh, and do you have any sage advice from this conversation? Yeah, it's nothing really to do with land, but more to do with China. And that is to be prepared to have a broad um, uh, acceptance of different vocabulary. Because I remember once when I was at a hotel buffet, and you know how I love buffets, because yes. you can um, eat uh, as, ma as many times as you like. And um, anyway, so the buffet had dishes some of which you know i couldn't identify others which were familiar to me but and each of them had a little label underneath them and so my advice is not to be put off by translations in china of foods that we like because one had bowels and i only realized when i looked at it that the bowels were actually tripe oh. and the other had the other had fungus which was actually mushrooms so um yeah so that's my advice for the traveler to china i think it's also an advice against using google translate because you never know what error no. you're going to pull out oh uh, well thank you we'll keep that in mind and i know that you're a real professional with buffets so i'll be following that advice well, thank you everyone for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. As always, if you would like to rate, review or like our podcast, that would be fantastic as it helps other people to find us. And we hope you'll be able to join us next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.